when you sit in London or in Paris or in a kind of comfortable European or Western capital, it doesn't really matter that much where the food comes from. But when you're sitting in a place where there is a kind of existential, deep existential schism or problem, then food becomes really important. Welcome to Unheard Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser, and this is the podcast in which we talk to well-known and interesting people and try and sit down with them and drill down into their core beliefs and work out what it is they're they believe and they're all on about. And um, today I have with me the um, wonderful, lovely Yotam Otolenghi. Yotam, welcome. Very Thank nice you. to see you. Thank you. What we normally do here is we, we start by talking about you and your background and where you come from, which of course is pretty fascinating. You were born in Jerusalem, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Jerusalem in 1968. Okay. Uh, so I, I celebrated my 50th birthday pretty recently. And um, yeah, I mean, a wonderful city in so many ways. I, I have to say that I think I was quite lucky because I grew up in Jerusalem in the 70s and 1980s. And there was a short period in time, which I, I call it the naive stage of the Palestinian Jewish relationship in the city, in which there was a sense that we might be able to live happily ever ever after. Uh, and I, I have a lot of very fond memories of the time growing up in Jerusalem. Where, did you, where, where was home? Where so was? We, I grew up in a small neighborhood in West Jerusalem called Ramad Denia, which is really not at all remarkable in any, in any particular way. Uh, but I, I, so a year after the Six Day War, 1967, and Jerusalem, the eastern part of Jerusalem has become under Jewish-Israeli control. And the whole, alongside the rest of the West Bank. And I felt throughout my childhood that this was both a familiar and a completely exotic, wonderful place to explore. And just recently I went to Israel with um, with my husband, Carl, and one of our boys. And we took a car with my parents from from Jerusalem, where they live, or they live outside Jerusalem, but not too far from the city, down to the Dead Sea. And... And then instead of turning left when we reached the Dead Sea and going to Jericho, we turned right and went to En Gedi, which is a, yeah. a, a, a kibbutz near uh, on the Dead Sea. And this reminded me of a bike ride we used to take. Uh, my, mom, we, my dad, my younger brother and myself would take our bicycles and literally we didn't even have to paddle, pedal one time because Jerusalem is 800 meters high and the Dead Sea is 300 meters below sea level. We just used to just literally ride down the hill all the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. You did know Yeah, yeah, wow. on our bicycles. I was probably 10 or 11, my brother was 8, and we just literally cycled all the way down. How did you get back, by the way? Because it's no, a hell of a hill. No, so my mom used to come back and pick us up in a car. <laughs> We'd load the bikes back on, her car, on our car and go back. But getting to Jer Jericho by bicycle, it was such a naive, as I said, period, you know, very, you know, beautiful before all the consequences of the occupation have raised their heads and you could see literally an unspoiled, beautiful desert with Bedouins and tremendous food when you reach Jer Jericho, a really fragrant, because Jer Jericho is so so um, low underneath sea level, it's very warm and humid, so it's almost like tropical. They grow wonderful citrus oh, oranges yeah, yeah, and... Yeah. And uh, beautiful, you know, salads and vegetables and meats and the flowering in the spring of all the uh, flowers that grow around there because it's a, it's a kind of a, um, it's at the, the bottom of the Jordan River or the, along the Jordan uh, River. So it's, it's 
pretty pretty fertile as well. When you go down that hill, it feels like the whole world is opening up before you, doesn't Completely. it? I mean, it's just extraordinary to see the oasis and, and, oh, and the uh, all the date um, uh, trees, and it, it's incredibly beautiful. And when you reach there, you can literally spend a whole day just enjoying those wonderful smells and it's it's so sensual you know it's salty and it's sweet and it's it's uh, perfumed like this you know the smells it's it was really wonderful so growing up in Jerusalem with the West Bank you know we used to go to Bethlehem and Jericho and Ramallah and all these places that are completely cordoned off now was wonderful and it is it is it was a, a great period so tell me about tell me about your mom and dad and and uh, my parents were uh, my dad was a university professor he was a chemistry professor and my mom was a maths teacher and then a head teacher so they were um kind of very academically orientated and that's the house, household i grew up in uh my mom was kind of an institution in jerusalem she was a headmistress at a big high school uh, which came, w- which was bad and good in equal measure. So obviously, <laughs> I, I was. She was quite controversial because she was very strict, okay. and I got the the hard end of the stick with many kids. I didn't go to her school, but I had you know friends and that went to her school. So it wasn't always easy. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I felt that I grew up very spoiled for for you know for inspiration in terms of you know my 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 education and my academic life so it's quite and, a bookish sort of household yeah quite a bookish quite a quite scientific as well okay. and uh and i felt i actually before i went to university i i i majored at high school i studied physics and mathematics but it's not something that i enjoyed but it was definitely part of our our house the the style in, at home um but yeah, it was it was great. I, I mean, it's it's a very middle class with all the, the you know the advantages that come off. Did they come to Israel? Bit. Did they themselves uh, come to Israel? Did they make Aliyah? Or was My there? parents arrived in Palestine in the nineteen thirty nine from Europe right. uh, as children. So they were very young. They were four years old. They they happened to arrive at the same time, the same year, the same age, but obviously not and together. From my, Italy. My mother was. My dad is from Italy. And my my mother is from Germany, oh, okay. so two different Jewish um, diasporas. Uh, but yeah, they arrived at the same at the same year. They happened. And they met at the university in Jerusalem in the nineteen fifties, and married and had my older sister, myself, and my younger brother. Um, we were kind of children of the born somewhere between the early 60s were they sort of liberal or they're, they're sort of like they were very liberal yeah okay. very they weren't liberal. religious and... no my parents were very non-religious in so many ways and uh, we were we grew up in a very agnostic household so religion was kind of not something so it's a part of that sort of secular Zionist sort of very secular I mean actually my my parents come from different backgrounds My on my dad's side they were actually uh, they were Zionists but they were actually quite traditional and a wee bit orthodox. I mean, not not a lot, but they were a very educated European household. But they were keeping kosher at home, etc. Okay. But my mum's side is kind of completely the opposite. They were. I was my mum was being buying pork under the counter in Jerusalem <laughs> in the nineteen seventies. I, I, I bought pork under the counter with my mother-in-law. It's quite a thing, isn't it's, it? Going to buy bacon in Tel Aviv. It is. It, it, <laughs> it's like it's it's like a sort of it's like buying things in some little brown envelopes. It was even more so in the Jerusalem of the nineteen seventies. <clears> and the one thing I would never forget, I wrote about it in the book Jerusalem, uh, my cookbook. Um, 
And I said, you know, she used to get those, those, we used to get those ham sandwiches for school. But my mom made my siblings and myself promise we'd tell everybody that was, that we were having turkey sandwiches. And that was, this was the pinkest turkey I've ever, I've ever, I've ever seen. So, yeah, quite, but, you know, there is something about in Israel, uh, every possible decision has huge implications about all, lots of other things that people that don't live in Israel don't really understand. So the, the decision about what you're going to eat or what you're not going to eat or whether you're going to go to synagogue or not going to synagogue has huge implications about your political positioning and where we are. We were quite a lefty house. And as a result, we couldn't be really that kind of religious. I mean, those I'm, I'm drawing a very... Did you keep? General. Did you did you just do high days and holidays and that sort of thing, or did you do Friday night? Uh, we didn't um, do any Friday night dinners, but we did. We the mo- the only thing we really did was the Passover meal when we used to go to my normally to my Italian grandmother. They were kind of the traditional side and do a proper seder. Um, but yeah, we were very uh, unorthodox, and right. my par- my parents still are. Uh, which people, uh, Jews in, in 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 Britain don't really understand that concept totally. I mean, the fact that I eat pork, so, I ra- it raises so many eyebrows. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's just the way I grew up, really. Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah, yeah. it was just, I mean, it's, it's a very German-Jewish thing, to, you know, that kind of forcefully assimilating yourself and then obviously with all the consequences of that that came later. But... And did you have that sort of, uh, in terms of food... Um, that those sort of secular Ashkenazi sort of that food that comes over from Europe, where you're sort of eating uh, basically sort of European <laughs> food in cream and meatballs and things like that in the yep. Middle East, it's crazy, really. I always think it's it was crazy. insane. I will rem- never. I will always remember my my. We had my mom, my grandmother, the German grandma was so German, and uh, so we had every Saturday go to her house for for Saturday lunch at two p.m. It was like clockwork and she always cooked the same same thing which was ox dung right braised in some kind of stock and then served with capers and and which is absolutely delicious but it was just the same Uh, a whole roasted a whole boiled cauliflower with a kind of a butter bread sauce that goes on top also very eastern european quite uh czech you know austro-hungarian which is where my grandmother comes from and um, some form of cabbage. <laughs> even you can't, uh, even with your genius at, at cooking, you can't make something out of gefilte fish, can you? <laughs> I kind of perversely like gefilte fish. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to always claim that I hate it, but really deep down inside, I do love the, I do love the contrast between something that is sweet and something that is spicy. So if you have it, there, there's, you know, we're not talking about British, like English Jewish gefilte fish, which is fried fish balls. We're talking about the ones set in aspic. Yes. And if you have that with a lot of horseradish and sugar inside, it's kind of, it is, it is officially disgusting, but actually I can have it. I can enjoy it, but that's just because I'm greedy. <laughs> so... Um, so you you have this. I, I understand a bit about your your sort of family, and school, and then your there's a sort of academic expectation I imagine from that sort of family, and you go into university. Yeah, I never really questioned whether I'm going to go to university or not. Going to university was just a given, and I went to Tel Aviv University 
in the early 90s, 1991 or two. Living in living at home in Jerusalem? or was that No, I moved to Tel Aviv. Jerusalem. And also I moved in with my boyfriend at the time, which was my first relationship, gay relationship. Um, we lived in uh, by the Carmel Market. Just in, oh, lovely. Uh, and, and, and I do remember from Tel Aviv in the early 90s, it was the first time I really had to cook because growing up, in my in my house, my parents did the cooking, and us kids enjoyed the food. But and I loved my parents' cooking. Both of them are really good cooks, uh, very different cooks, but very good cooks. And when I moved to Tel Aviv, I realized that if I don't learn how to cook, nobody will cook for me. I mean, it's a it's a very banal realization, but it's a real it's a real truth that people who leave, leave a home with good food find themselves. Uh, struggling, you know, yes, because yes, it's, yes. it's like, so I, I started going to the market. And, and you buy, couldn't live on pizza. I mean, the good thing is the street food in Tel Aviv has always been, or in Jerusalem as well, has always been good, but you just want to kind of have meals like proper. And I remember going to the Carmel Market and, ha- and the, one of the smells that I will always remember is that fresh herbs, because it's so hot, they're always kind of kept under yeah. cover and, and with lots of water like drip, you know, being... Uh, um, sprayed on it and those, the, the dill and the coriander and the tarragon and the basil and all those kind of intensely um, it, it comes out of the mist of, of water that, and heat which is incredibly uh, sensual and I will always remember those herbs so my love of herbs I think has been kind of uh, created during this time in Tel Aviv in the market going and to, to a sort things. of western to, to a westerner um, with a sort of different you know the fact that we've sort of we go to Sainsbury's and so forth. You go to the, it feels dirty. I mean, it feels like it. Does those it really? sorts of markets. I mean, I I absolutely love it. But I know Westerners will go there and think, oh my word, in Could this I heat this? and and so forth. But you're absolutely right about the. It just for the just feels the heat makes it. The feel. heat makes everything sm- <clears throat> smell and taste a hundred times more than it does if it's refrigerated. And this is one of the things I feel I have like this vendetta against chilling food because I mean we live in a society Society that is so risk averse in so many ways, but in 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 how far we're going to let our food warm up before we consume it is really another 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 manifestation of that. And when you go to a market, like you say, both in Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, you see like bits of meat hanging for hours, yes, days yes, on, yes. and flies on them, and they're yes. absolutely fine if you cook yes. them properly. But for a Western eye, it's just it just doesn't work. And and I guess I've only become sensitive to it since I moved here. But in the early days, going to the market in, in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem and seeing those wonderful herbs and cheeses sitting in those... We have nothing like Karma Market or Machni Yehuda here. We have nothing like that, do we? Just... No, but it's because it's a living market with a heart. And when you go to market in, 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 in Western Europe, but particularly Northern Europe in particular here, there are constructs. I mean, they're great because people get into... But people have been thinking about how to create them while those markets in the Middle East are so just... So Borough Market organic. is too, too overthought, is it? I mean, in a sense, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but it just doesn't... It doesn't have the same function. It hasn't kind of evolved in the same way that these markets that have been around... Organically. And... Organically and also... Um, really uh, re- reflecting a way of life because uh, Machne Yehuda Market in Jerusalem is somewhere where people come 
and buy their food. There's no other, there's nowhere else to buy the food, or at least there wasn't when I was growing up. So you'd go to the fishmonger and you go to the butcher and you go to the to those wonderful vegetable stalls and you buy it. Especially on a Friday, it's hectic. It's so wonderful because they've got this plan. You know, the Jews and also Muslims they have this plan to cook for the weekend, which is insane because at some point you're not allowed to cook anymore. So you used to actually start on a Thursday night yeah. and you build up all those dishes that are going to sit there ready to be consumed on the on the Saturday. And that really makes you um, dictates some quite heavy shopping and calculated shopping, all starting on a Thursday with yeah. all the f- cooking yeah, going yeah, on yeah, on a yeah, Friday yeah. morning. It's so wonderful. And there's restaurants in the market, I've written about them, spoken about them, that reflect that, like Azura, which is a Kurdish, uh, Jewish, Kurdish, Turkish restaurant. Uh, where all the dishes are prepared like early in the morning or even in the middle of the night, sitting on these little fires, uh, you know, sitting in their cooks, you know, cook it like stuffed meat, meat or or vegetables or or a stew, and then people come in at ten, eleven o'clock in the morning and have those things that have sat for hours cooking. It's a wonderful experience. So we'll come back on to cooking. We'll come yeah, back on to yeah. cooking. So what did you what did you study at university? I studied comparative literature and philosophy. Oh, okay. And I was particularly interested in philosophy of art and representation in in art. Uh, so I did my I did my uh, MA in uh, comparative literature in the, the comparative literature department. But my dissertation was about representation and photography, world representation and photography, from a really a very philosophical discussion about where does the image stand in relation to reality when you when the when the medium is not someone's an artist's mind but a mechanical process like like a camera and where I does see. the person, the human agent the work of art come and the agent, in? Yeah, representation, in. Those yeah which I kind of enjoyed, but I feel now that I I go back and read, I don't, I wouldn't go back and read my dissertation even if you paid me a lot of money, but. Um, I, when I look at it now, it felt quite futile. It was a very, like what I found really weird, like when I finished my dissertation uh, after one and a half or two years of really hard work and a lot of thinking, I printed like five copies and gave it to my parents, to my best friends and to my supervisor. And for the life of me, I'm sure no one has ever read them. <laughs> you know, it's like... So there's a, there's a gap that's opening up here, I guess, with, with you going to the markets and, you know, the, the way in which you talk about the, the spices and how exciting it is. And then also, but you're actually writing your dissertation. There's, 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 the, there's the emotional, appetitive, and then there's the intellectual. There's this sort of split, I guess, between... In a way, yes, and I always felt... Mind, like, body. I do love both aspects of the, of being, those two aspects of being. And I've never felt that they are not related or connected. Obviously, they are. Everything is connected. But I did feel that my intellectual life was quite futile in a sense that, you know, when I, I it's a bit funny that saying that nobody has read it, but the conversation I felt was, was being, he, he, was happening in rooms with so few people that actually understood what we were talking about. And all of a sudden, when I started cooking for people, the audience was so great and the reaction was so immediate that that <clears throat> contrast was mind bending. I thought, like, actually, I could cook a meal and get smiles on so many people's faces with such little effort. That it just couldn't compare to that kind of the, the the what an intellectual life that felt very futile in a sense. And did your were your parents disappointed that you sort of left the life of the mind as it were? Not that you have, but you know that you professionally speaking, and that you decided to uh, embark on a career. They in were less food. disappointed and more concerned. I think at that okay. st- at th- those early days, I was like approaching thirty, 
And I had a, I could become a journalist or I could become an academic in theory because I, I did both things and I was, I was pretty good. And I think they were thinking that like any parent would think, especially my father voiced it in a, in a letter that he wrote to me saying, you know, it's absolutely fine if that's what you want to do. But I'm really worried about you um, getting lost in this on this journey. And he, he voiced it in a very in a very generous way. And he said, you know, do what you need to do. And I completely understand that. I'm a, I'm a father now and I've got two very young children. I'm, I've always get have their best interest in my mind, but I'm not sure it's always their best interest and not mine. Of course, you were 30 because presumably you uh, spent three years in the army. I did. I spent what did three you do in the army? I was in the intelligence and, uh, and I, I studied Arabic at school so I could I used that to get a job that didn't require me to you didn't you weren't fighting fighting. yeah I've to be honest I have (laughs) always worried and from a very young age I I I knew I couldn't become a fighter and if I was going to do my military service I had to find a way out so it was quite calculating when I tell this to people now they can't quite believe it for a 12 or a 13 year old to choose Arabic as the language because I knew they would get me out of having to do that uh, right? yeah yeah I was because I was terrified of having to serve in a fighting unit and what about your children I mean I have this with my children my wife is Israeli as you know and so the idea that my children and I think uh, you know in terms of getting Israeli passports for them and then yeah. whether they will serve in the IDF is like do you do you have any are they going to get Israeli passports? Or? My parents, my my children don't have Israeli passports, and I wouldn't want them to serve in the Israeli army. If I'm completely honest, um, first of all, I don't think it will become relevant because we are so deeply rooted in in our London lives that I can't see us moving there. So that that kind of precludes that. But um, it's difficult for me to even start to imagine that it's it's really not our reality. And as, as if someone can avoid serving in a military force by in any way they can, then I always think like, you know, better. I, I, I had a younger brother who was killed in an accident in the army, um, and uh, he was, um, uh, he was two years younger than me, and he was in the IDF. He was an officer, and uh, he was shot by what they call friendly fire in oh, a drill. Where was that? Uh, that was in nineteen ninety one. When he was on 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 when he was doing his military service, okay. compulsory military service, and um, I mean that's happened, but um, I for me that is closely of naturally associated as a kind of a very live live consequences of you know joining a military force, and I've I've I, I would never want if if I can for my children to be there. And I don't think that that's the reason, but it's definitely something in the background that makes me think a million times. What is the justification for for that? What could be? I I um I, I share all of the, your anxiety about my children too. But I <clears throat> I guess more recently with talk about so much talk about anti-Semitism and that sort of like uh, you know the, the sort of whether there's a new feel about anti-Semitism in in Europe and this country. Part of that makes me think. You know, I'm really really glad that my Children have access to Israeli passports if they need it. It's the yeah. first time I've started to think like that. You know, I'm which still I in the very, I'm still in a much more innocent stage. Of, <laughs> I don't really think, but maybe I'll learn to regret. I'll, I'll I'll learn to regret that. But I still don't feel that my kids. There's a chance they'll be unsafe 
here. Do you, do you feel do you feel a, a different temperature about anti-Semitism here? Just by reading the news and and, uh, and and listening to the radio, not in any of my experiences. But I know I live a very sheltered life in, in North London, where you know I I don't I know I'm not exposed to things that happen in other places. But you're quite. It's interesting you say that because you're high profile Jewish. You have exposure through your restaurants, and you know which is you know. Anyway, Middle Eastern, yeah. certainly food and so forth. I'm surprised that you haven't been exposed to some degree of anti-Semitism. No, I have. I'm, I, I hand on heart, I haven't been exposed to it personally, uh, and I, I really hope I won't be. Although I think it's probably not. It, it's going to happen one way or another. Um, no, and I, I really have a very. Um, I know I arrived here in twenty more than twenty years ago. And I arrived from a country where I felt the, the kind of the struggle and the strife so intense that I felt like I, I've got to go at least for a little while to kind of to free to kind of liberate myself from extricate myself from this. When, kind when of, did you leave Israel? Being, I left Israel in 1995, the end of 1995. Rabin. Yeah, like a couple of weeks after Rabin was assassinated. I would love to say that that was the reason, but it was, pla- it was planned a few years, a few weeks before he was assassinated. I was actually in that demonstration when he was assassinated, and and you you were in in the in demonstration, Rebbe Square. You were yeah. in King Square. Yeah, I was there when he when he was killed. Wow. And um, I used to work in Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper at the time, as a sub editor, and I remember getting f- uh, phone calls. Uh, about it because we were just leaving the demonstration because it happened at the end of the demonstration when he was... He walked down the stairs. And he walked down the stairs. He was giving a speech or something. And I got this call, phone call and people from the news desk were calling to say, oh, this has happened and you, you've got to come in. And it was just completely, um, you know, it was, it, was a, it was something that for a very long time seemed... Uh, like um, like a kind of an, something that couldn't really happen, like a nightmare that is not uh, without any sense of reality to it because we, you were there. I mean, I think when you hear about those things, you can put them into diff- places in your mind. And But when you're there, it just seems to completely unreal. I mean, he was there two minutes ago. We watched him give a speech and then we we're walking down um, the road and you get these phone calls. So it felt, and then the sirens and everything. But... I just felt that I'm moving from a place that is very abnormal to a place which is very normal. But you, I mean, you sort of—I mean, that was that—that that assassination. I mean, you know, you could Israel changed after that assassination. I mean, it, it became a it became a different sort. It feels to me it became a different sort of place. Yes, from, it has changed. It has changed in a very in a in a very fundamental way because, I mean, he was assassinated at a, at a at a moment. I mean, we're talking about a sense of uh, you know. Uh, uh, some kind of naive understanding of the reality when I was talking about the 70s and now we're you know we're fast forwarding to 20 years and this is the mid 90s and this was after the peace accords have been signed with the PLO and Arafat was shaking Rabin's hand and the world seemed like it's going somewhere or our world the Middle East and that assassination has really broken that sense of of um of uh, hope optimism yeah. and optimism yeah, 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 yeah. and what followed was <clears throat> terrible there was a whole half a decade or I, I can't remember exactly how long of terrible suicide um, attacks in Tel Aviv and other parts of Israel the peace process completely um, unraveling and 
And since then, there hasn't been any sense of similar hope uh, within the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So being here up until two and a half years ago have felt like a like you know a bastion of sanity and I thought like I, I I'm going to bring my my children up in a place that feels like it doesn't struggle under the same uh, the same level of you know of tense struggle that you get in Israel and Palestine but obviously I feel a little bit less so now but I haven't moved to the to, I haven't quite accepted that it might be the case that this will be as as dangerous a place or as or as um, torn a place as, as as Israel is, but it might. I hope not. No, oh, I want to. So, um, how do you? I understand how you got into cooking because you're already even you're cooking for yourself when you're a student and so forth. But so you you work for Harrods and then you leave and you you come to come to Europe. I went to I, I went to live in Amsterdam for a couple of years with my with my boyfriend at the time. And uh, we spent two years, kind of, I had to finish my dissertation, so I wrote it there in a in an attic in Amsterdam, in a very uh, traditional... More aesthetics. Yeah. More aesthetics. <laughs> yeah. More aesthetics. Yeah. I was listening. It was a beautiful s- surrounding to write my dissertation. And w- at the end of these two years, which were kind of like quite hedonistic, lots of going out, nightclubs, etc., I felt that I needed to do something with my life. And this is when I moved to London. And London seemed like a very business-minded place after Amsterdam. And I I came and I took a couple of courses at the Cordon Bleu Cookery School. Uh, Not because I loved French cooking, but because I thought I needed to learn quickly some basic tools (laughs) that would move me forward if I was to become a chef. And I didn't really decide to take to uh, this as a on on this as a career as such at that point but i thought this might become my career and i and i um started working in restaurants and i i was doing a pastry work mostly in the first few years in kitchens i worked uh, for um Roly lee at at kensington place uh, and i worked for uh, and then I worked at the, at the big patisserie shop called Baker and Spice in Knightsbridge. So I, I became a pastry chef and I loved Walton it. Walton Street, is that Walton the Street. I know. Yeah. yeah, opposite Scalini's. Exactly. I know. Yes. And I was there. It, I became the head pastry chef there, <coughs> and I absolutely loved this. I just found that I, I really felt like I found my place because it was such a. I have a very busy mind, and it works over time and sometimes it may, it really exhausts me to think so much and I felt I felt that um, being completely uh, getting the full excuse not to think but just to work with my hands was w- just what I needed and that's I what I found so after, cool. so after years of writing dissertations that no one's going to read <laughs> that sort of over overly sort of you know, thinking too much that that there's there's, there's some sort of uh, relief from just being Entirely practical. Entirely practical. I get that. Yeah, completely. And also, you know, I I've, I felt that there's the separation between work and home I've never had. And I, like, you know, like, so I used to work in a newspaper. And as soon as I got home from work, I was only working at the news desk. And so I'd finish my shift like 11, 12 o'clock at night. As soon as I got home, I'd turn on the radio. I'd, in the morning, I'd go and get the paper, look at everything. And, and, and same was university, you know, I've, if I was always had to read someone's article or some book or, or and when I, when I used to start working in the kitchen, I, I was, I was, I felt such a relief that I finished work. That's the job's done. I could go home. I could veg. I could choose to read a book or not read a book. I could watch TV. All of a sudden that 
wonderful separation between work and normal life became an option. I never knew this was a problem until I, I saw how the other half lives. And I loved it. You know, I used to work at Baker and Spice. It's hard work, kitchens. You stand up for many hours um, physically. But once you're done, you're done. We had Alan Rusbridger on on this uh, on Confessions, and he was telling me that uh, after he finishes the editor of The Guardian, it took him two years to work out what a human body should feel like after the adrenaline is flushed through. Yes. Because it was just so all-consuming, so constant, so 24 hours, and like two years. Yes. To, for, for you to realise that actually w- what you're supposed to feel like. So I completely understand. Completely. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling, really. I mean, I, I, adrenaline is great. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, these jobs that I used to do, I, I love them. But there is something really... And that's what I still find cooking gives me that sense. So I, I don't cook in my restaurants for quite a while now. I am in charge. But when I cook at home, I have this kind of ritual of putting some music on and going into the kitchen and cooking something completely benign. I'm not testing a recipe. I'm not cooking yeah, yeah. for any, anyone. You're cooking but, for your loved ones. And I, I, even I do things that are really ridiculously uh, un, unchallenging, like cooking a vegetable ratatouille for, to put in containers to freeze for my kids for the week, you know, batch cooking. And I find it so relaxing. And I remember what it was like when I just started cooking, that sense of realization that that physical activity, mindless physical activity is really relaxing. And I think like anything else, like meditation, like a certain sport that you take on, it's just got that ability to allow you to switch, gives you the the wonderful excuse to switch off without feeling any sense of guilt or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you feel like you're doing something. And uh, I I love cooking. I mean, I I do love cooking, but cooking is so bound up with... um, that sort of very physical love that you have for other people because I, I cook for only cook for my loved ones or for the people that I like. And, and it's, it's just so wrapped up in that, in the care you give. I can understand how, I mean, it's just such a wonderful... It is this, the act of cooking. I, I thought about it recently because someone asked me, like, um, there is, it involves things that are very mundane but great fun for me, you know, the shopping and the preparation. They're all great things they're quite you know they're not in, in any well you know there's I can't nothing imagine you going shopping by the way going, i just got well i just can't, can't imagine someone in the supermarket seeing yotta monkey what he's putting in his bag no i completely <coughs> go shopping i love shopping i, I live on, supermarkets yeah well i don't go to supermarkets that much but i go to i've got a great vegetable store around across the street from where i live and i go and buy my vegetables there and i come home and i cook or the butcher or wherever i go um I love that bit of the process and I love the cooking but I but and those are these are all very deeply um intertwined you know that the, the the cooking and then the the feeding is actually the best part but they're all connected you know the shopping the cooking yes, and the yes, feeding yes. and we often have people over for you know for lunch on a Sunday and uh, and I cook maybe on a Saturday night or a little bit on a Sunday morning. And when they arrive and you can kind of present the food, yeah. I love the act of presenting the food at the table. Uh, I hate plating, you know, like, and then people, it's very yes, functional, yes, yes. but yeah. the presenting, you know, the Ottolenghi display of food is, is for me a wonderful act of giving, but it's also very, it's also an artistic thing. Don't you miss, you talk about your vegetable shop, don't you miss the vegetables that you can 
get in the Middle East when compared to our vegetables, the sort of the um, way the sun works on them or whatever yeah, it is. They're not the same, but actually we're in a really good position here, I have to say. Like my vegetable shop, which is a tiny vegetable shop on Parkway in Camden, uh, and I've, I'm grateful every morning for the existence of this shop and for the general re- recent, recent resurgence of independent uh, food shops, especially vegetable shops, gro- uh, greengrocers, it's pretty good. Okay. You know, great, great cauliflowers, great turnips, great potatoes, lots of European stuff that comes over from Italy. It's not bad. Yes, of course, it's not the same. But it it really isn't bad. I mean, they, uh, my my parents live outside Jerusalem, and there's a they have a great greengrocer, and my mom always knows what there is because she's been yesterday, and it's very limited, but great things, you know. So you know, courgettes in season, and aubergines in seasons, and strawberries, and I I really miss that because there's very limited to work with. But actually, that's the, you can become the most creative when there's a very limited yes, range of yes, things of to course. cook with. Um, so when I go and stay with them, I always go to the vet shop with her and we buy, we shop together, which is great. And then, and then I cook with whatever they have, like wonderful apricots. You know, apricot season is so short. In Arabic, they say, Bukrafil Mishmish, which is, uh, says, which means like, um, tomorrow, Mishmish is apricot in Arabic and in Hebrew, and tomorrow is Bukra. And they say, uh, you know, you don't know what's good tomorrow going to bring because the season is so short. So it's a kind of a metaphor to, to just life in general. Yeah. And those apricots, they've got like, I don't know, three weeks where they're in full season. They've got this incredible glut of apricots and you can make your jams or your chutneys or whatever, or your dried apricots. And then, and then it's, it's done. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's, it, you don't get that here. No, no, no. It was in Baker and Spice that you met um, Sammy Tamimi, that's right. Isn't yeah. It? And your relationship with him is sort of like interesting, obviously, because he he was from Jerusalem, but from the other side of the divide, yeah. as it were. Yeah, so Sammy is a Palestinian, and we were both born in the same year, in 1968, and he had a, uh, he went on his own journey that brought him to London. But when I met him, which was in 1999, so after having been here for a couple of years, um, I so I walked into Baker and Spice. Sammy was cooking there, and I started t- talking to him. We hadn't known each other at the time. I was looking for a job, and he just we just started talking, and it was really it was it was a weird and wonderful thing that we have come from the same place have gone through so many different things in our life he's also gay he's uh, spent time in tel aviv in the early 90s same way as i did but it was in kind of a in Knightsbridge in 1998 <laughs> and 1999 that we meet each other and we've got so much in common like so many things like how far away from each other did you live when you were in I would say, did I he, know, is he from East Jerusalem he's from East Jerusalem I would say no three four kilometers away yeah, from yeah, each yeah. other really short distance yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, oh, but you know, he, he spent way more time in kitchens than I did at that point because he started off as a pot wash in a, in a hotel in, in East Jerusalem and, and, you know, and climbed his way up through, through kitchens in Jerusalem and then Tel Aviv and then ended up in London. I kind of started later. But apart from that, we had a kind of a really bizarrely similar uh, trajectory. And so when we met each other, it was very easy to, form a friendship because there was just so we had so much in common and we just like used to, used to go to 
to old Compton Street and sit in coffee shops and chat and and kind of reminisce and 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 really enjoy the you know the wonders of modern London and what it had to offer and it was really really wonderful and this relationship has has sustained us and made us creative and you know and when we set up Ottolenghi uh which was a partnership of more than just us. It was, it was we were four partners, four active partners, but it was definitely our creative relationship and the, our history that has made it what it was. And I think we didn't realize it, it when we were doing, but when we were setting up this display of food on the counter and on Ledbury Road in 2001, Actually, what we did, we only realized now, was kind of recreated, recreating the the market. You know, the the markets we used to frequent and visit when we were kids. But we, when we were do, when we were doing it, we didn't realize it only took two or three years for us to really understand that, that was what it was. We're kind of showing off our produce, you yeah, know, yeah. In, the, in the same way. I have a lot to be grateful to him for because um, he he told me when we, we did that Jerusalem book launch, when we remember that yeah. one, years ago, <clears throat> and uh, he told me the right kebab shop to go to in the old city in Jerusalem. So, um, and it was quite difficult to find. So anyway, I found it uh, when I was next there and I went in and of course it was as excellent as he said. And I just happened to say, I said, Sammy to me, he said, for me to come here, this is the place. <laughs> well, they were just, you know, they said, oh, my word. So every time I, I go in there, when I go to Jerusalem, and they always, oh, you're no Sammy <laughs> Tamimi. Every time he once, I only met him a few times. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, it is it is really incredible. And, I, and you know, people have always asked us, and we talked about it, you and I spoke about it on, once or twice, about it was quite difficult. I mean, in a sense, people like to, see, to look at Sammy and me as a kind of poster boys of you know of the of you know israeli israel palestinian harmony potential harmony and and as a as a way out of this mess that we're in and i oh, both Sammy and i feel a little bit uncomfortable about being in that position because you know it's it's we're not there and in the sense that it's possible, it's even very likely that the distance is what allows us to kind of keep that relationship going. Because if we were living there, there's so many pressures, there's so many um, issues to deal with uh, in your daily life. And every time there is a flare up, whether it's in Gaza or the Middle East or Jerusalem, we, I, I read about it and think like, would we be able to survive this had we been there? Um, that I, I mean, we are both slightly reluctant to be taking that. that on. There's a very interesting. There's a very interesting book by um, Amos Oz, the late Amos Oz, mm-hmm. um, in, in which uh, I think it's called "How to Cure a Fanatic" or something, some title like that. In which he starts by saying, "There's a sort of Western European mindset." that goes, if we just take some Arabs and some Israelis and we take them out to a nice sort of place in Italy <laughs> and then they'll all like each other and once they like each other, it'll all be solved. And he said, that's just such a naive thing. Yeah. You know, actually, the, the problems are structural and it's not about people who are, you know, a- Arabs and Israelis have more in common than they have with Europeans. Of course, they're likely to be friends, but actually the problems are political and structural and it's not about whether you get on or yeah, not. And absolutely. I, and I completely understand why... <clears throat> the world would want to see it through this perspective because it's it's hopeful. Yes. And the reality is less hopeful than that. But and also food is a place where people really feel a sense of communality and we cook. So, you know, it's if it's food and music and you know those kind of apolitical 
not really, they're not really apolitical. They're not, they, are they? But they are perceived as apolitical yeah. or above politics. Hummus is not apolitical, is it? Hummus is not, 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 not when you eat it in the Middle East. No, <laughs> <laughs> it isn't. Perhaps we ought to explain that. People claim it, don't they? So people claim hummus as uh, um, from different sorts of... Um, it's the, it's the old or new question of ownership of food. I mean, I mean, when you sit in London or in Paris or in a kind of comfortable European or Western capital, it doesn't really matter that much where the food comes from. But when you're sitting in a place where this, where there is a kind of existential, um, a deep existential schism or problem, then food becomes really important. And hummus is one of those because hummus is claimed by Palestinians to and for, for, for all the right reasons as their national uh, food. And so it is also claimed by Israelis for, for also good reasons. Uh, but when there is such a deep, deep, deep schism, then, then it becomes a real problem and everybody wants hummus, hummus to be their own. Uh, so it, it creates tension and questions of ownerships that are really deep running. And I will, I will never forget once going to this, uh, it was on, it's on camera because I did a show about Jerusalem for the BBC quite a few years ago. And there was this uh, man who's making hummus in East Jerusalem. And I said to him, like, I started all, I question, asking him um, about the politics of hummus. And he said to me something which I found funny and disturbing. And I think we level says, I said to him, so what do you think about this Jew, Jews taking hummus as their own and he said to me what do I care about hummus you know they took our land they took our culture do you think I, I care about a plate it's of hummus, hummus. <laughs> and uh, it was very profound in a sense but also telling a lot about you know how deep these things go and how much the food can be um, you know slotted into this into this conversation and into this um, struggle do you, do you feel this is a hard question, and it's unfair because I've been. But I'm going to ask you anyway, because like, so in in being here, not I mean, home is here now for you, mm. but but not being where you come from, do you feel some sense of guilt that you're not a part of that? Or? Um, I I do I I'm not really a person that normally experiences guilt, but sometimes I feel because I've got family back in Israel, my sister, her and her kids, and my parents. I often feel that, in a way, I should be there with them, not out of kind of nationalistic uh, um, impulse, no. but more by just kind of solidarity. Solidarity. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, they're there, they have a whole being, and they don't have a bad life, they have a good life. But their, their existence is much more complicated than mine. And uh, and maybe I should be there with them. It's not a realistic option, but it is something that sometimes crosses my mind. So food. Let's talk about food because yeah. uh, forget about the politics. <laughs> can, can you really take food from the Middle East and sort of put it into London and and does it does it work? I mean, can it can it really be done? I mean, sometimes I the reason I'm asking you this is I went the other day to. Um, went the other day to a, a, a well-known Israeli restaurant, not one of yours, in, in this country, which has a, uh, it's called Palomar, you know, and uh, it has a, um, it, it was a spin-off from a, a, a restaurant called Machni Huda near the market. And I had, they had some of the same dishes and I had a dish uh, in London, which they also have in the restaurant there. It was the polenta dish, which yeah. is quite famous. And in, uh, in Israel, the polenta dish comes in this for a simple 
glass. Kilner jar. Kilner, yeah, kil- kil- that's exactly yeah. right. It comes in this it's a simple sort of jar. And then I went to have it in Panama, and it's in this silver, gold, <laughs> grand thing. And I thought, how extraordinary. Something... And there's something got lost in translation. A little bit got lost in translation for me. Now, this is... And it became a sort of metaphor for thinking about when I eat Israeli food. In Israel, and I, when I eat Israeli food, which is becoming incredibly popular in London now, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and you were the person that made it popular. Um, it, are, there, are there problems of translation, put it that way? Yes, there are <coughs> problems, but it's not impossible. Okay. So I think um, I have to have the same experience. So this is not... Vietnam is not my cuisine, but a few years ago I went to Vietnam with a good old friend and we sat on the pavement and we had some of those famous faux soups that they have, you know, noodles and broth and lots of beautiful herbs. And this was one of the best culinary experiences that I've ever had. And ever since, you know, going to a Vietnamese restaurant, uh, whether it's in London or New York or anywhere else in the world, is just not the same experience. So, but I'm glad that is the case. I'm glad that any a Vietnamese bowl of soup is not quite the same here as it is in in on the streets of Hanoi. Because uh, why go to Hanoi then if it would, if it would have been the same? So, I'm it, it, in some ways it's good. And with Israeli food, it's the same. Of course, if you sit in the market and you have a in, in Mahnuda is a market restaurant. A market restaurant is a thing. In Israel, it means that the vegetables come from the market. It means that they are inspired by seasonality in a way that either just claim to be but not re- aren't really. It means that it, it comes from the cultures, especially in Jerusalem, that live around the market, the Yemeni, the Kurds, the Turks, the Persians. So it means a lot of things that it couldn't possibly mean here. So the fact that it's lost in, in translation, it's almost desirable. I see. But it doesn't mean that you don't get something which in some ways evokes some of those flavors and it's it's a good thing. And look, people have hummus from a fridge which is really terrible, um, a very pale, an extremely dreadful replica of the real thing uh, in supermarkets all over in 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 all over the world. It's fine, you, and then you go to Yafo, you go to East Jerusalem, or you go to anywhere else in Palestine or Israel, and you have the real thing, and you know what it's <clears> supposed <throat> to be. So. I'm fine with all that. That's compl- that's just life. It's complicated. But, but you're not fine with English food, are you? So you have a. You, I've heard you say some mean things about. English I have to food. say that I have. I, it's been squeezed out of me. Actually, I do like English. Oh, food. do you? Yeah, I do like English food. I, 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 I just think there is a lot that it maybe isn't prepared properly. But I, one of my first jobs as a pastry chefs. In 1999 or 1988, when I worked at Lonston Place in Kensington was to make Yorkshire puddings. Oh, I, really? Yeah, because that's the job of the pastry chef traditionally in a restaurant. And I just thought that was the most one of the most delicious things yeah, I've ever is. made or eaten. Of course it is. And it was part of the, it was a Sunday roast. And, you know, there was a roast lamb and beef and some pork dish. And there was those wonderful vegetables that were prepared carefully and beautifully. And there was the horseradish sauce and the bread sauce. And I just thought, this is a thing of wonder. It's absolutely delicious. I've had a lot of bad British food since. and I, But I think the basis is very good. And desserts are some of the best. I prefer British desserts to French desserts because they're so more real. You know, taking beautiful things and putting them in a, in a bowl and create, calling it a trifle or a mess or whatever it is, it's just so much more up my street than, than complicated French desserts with lots of gelatine. So I really have no 
problem with British food. I've actually found a lot of inspiration okay. in British food. But but there was also a lot of bad things around. And I do think that it's often when you go somewhere which does things without thought, then you do get bad food. But I have to say that you get that all over the world. And is there a difference between uh, uh, metropolitan areas and or perhaps even London? So, I mean, the restaurant scene in London is so buzzy and vibrant yeah. and so forth and uh, is, is that replicated in yeah. other parts of that's England? replicated but that but again that is a that is a worldwide phenomenon you get really good food in in the in the metro, metropolis metropolis and then you get not quite good food out but they, i i really think that what you were describing about you know the the israel experience restaurant outside israel is something that has i mean the world has become a smaller place and uh, as usual, there's, there's, you know, there's good consequences, bad consequences to the situation. But generally speaking, I love the fact that there is a f- language of food that has become so international. I think most of the consequences are absolutely great. And you know, I I've spent a lot of time on Instagram looking at what people are cooking and other means, you know, magazines and computer screens, and. This is as, for for someone who comes from a place in the world where where there's a lot of walls being erected between cultures, it's absolutely great to see that walls are coming down between cultures with where there's even not a common language. And so you can see, you know, there was this Brussels sprout craze last year or a year before that, where people were like cooking Brussels sprout. It was the hipster food of the no, I didn't know that. hipster okay. vegetable okay. of the of the okay. um, of the moment. And I, I remember one time looking at this plate from a from an Instagrammer in Moscow cooking this roasted Brussels sprouts dish with hoisin sauce or whatever, <laughs> and someone else doing something quite similar in Brooklyn or another part of the world. And I just thought, like, this is amazing. I mean, when you look at that, I mean, food has reached these places that it wouldn't have reached otherwise. And, and yet I, there is a sort of like there's a tension there, isn't there? So there's a tension between sort of localism. You know, you talking about get, getting the vegetables with your mum, apricots, and, you know, they're only in season for a little bit, and you just go for the sort of what's there locally. And then the sort of internationalization, the fusion and so forth. There's a tension between those two different sorts of uh, there experiences. Is, yeah, there is this tension. And, and, and again, it's a very dialectical kind of situation where there's a lot of good things coming out and there's a there's also a kind of erasing of differences and we, and I I'm not, I'm I'm never one to want to kind of gloss over these questions but but it's very easy to heart to you know to yearn to go back to a era that is either has never existed or is not really relevant anymore where things are you know super regional and because even in the regions you know in the places where i fall i fall foul a bit of that instinct you know when you go to when you go to sicily or when you go to the middle east or you go you see people buying packet stuff and and readjusting recipes to modern day life and you you just got to live authenticity is overrated as a sort of it's kind of doesn't really exist as much as it used to be and we are we are really i mean that romantic attitude is is really fun. like you know people everywhere go and put a bit of a few drops of a stock cube into their sauces you know you, where you go to Palestine or you go to Sardinia you go like the 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 kind of 
the mama we all want to learn something from takes a bit of stock Norris nor stock cube yeah, and puts yeah. a few of those and then you yeah. taste and it's absolutely marvelous but you hate putting it on your TV show because like what am I gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna show the rest of the world that she puts nor cube in, in her in her divine sauce but it's just the reality it still has a lot of integrity and it's still delicious and it still reflects the way she cooks and the way that She's been taught how to cook by her mom, but she adapted it. It's absolutely fine. You know, it's just the way it is. Yotam, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank really, you, really good, mate. Very Pleasure. nice to see you, my friend. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>